Hi, I'm Michael Musi, and this is The Schema. Today, I'm talking to Frank Ingari, the CEO of Tandine Health. And Frank and I are going to be discussing some of the pressures on the US healthcare system and why we're hopeful about the moment we're in driving future change to advance a healthcare system which is better for all patients and all communities. Frank, thanks for joining us today. Before we dive in, tell me a little bit about yourself, Tandime Health, and, and your background in this wild world of healthcare tech. All right. So I came to healthcare late in my career. I was a mainstream tech guy. Uh, I ran the product Lotus One Two Three way back in the day. So I've been in tech for a long time, and I was lured into healthcare by a venture capital friend and fell in love with the business. And I fell right into population health value-based care in early days, kind of an accidental pioneer, yeah. a company called Essence Healthcare out in St. Louis, uh, and founded Lumaris when I was there. Uh, and what I do at Tandime is very similar. We're a company that's kind of one of this class of companies that's neither payer nor provider. We sit in between and we run population health programs and try to you know, improve healthcare that way. And as I've tracked your progress over the last decade plus, you've had a unique opportunity to bridge tech and the enablement. And I think that that's, that's really exemplified by the work that you're doing at Tandem. Tell me about your other experiences bringing tech and enablement together to drive positive outcomes in healthcare. Well, the first thing that I saw, which I had nothing to do with building, I inherited it, was the system at Essence Healthcare, uh, where the PCPs um, had built this insurance company um, who changed physician behavior without owning the physicians. And that was the key. So you did it with communications, um, with contracts that were very physician positive, and with technology, with coordination and technology. And that technology involved a lot of things we take for granted now were pretty radical in 2007, generating patient rosters of uh, care gaps that were needed, incentive programs that drove engagement and star ratings improvement, uh, for example, and analytics that would identify cost reduction opportunities like the replacement. In those days, this was a new thing, replacing branded with generic drugs, for example. That's great. We've talked a lot over the last couple of years around a number of the trends that are influencing the work that we all do in this sector, the transformation of payment models, the adoption of technology by practices, sometimes really well, sometimes leaving a lot of room for improvement. But I think what's unique about the, the moment of time we're in right now is that there are a number of conflating factors that are driving ever more need for the types of services that businesses like yours provide. As we look at the last couple of weeks, however, there's been an enormous amount of press around the health of the US healthcare system. You have some of the largest and best known names in nonprofit healthcare posting astronomical losses. Right. You have press around the reduction of life expectancy for US residents. You have conversation around health inequity, which is driving a, a bunch of legislation. I actually just saw an article that there's an investigation into AI and healthcare being too biased and leaving exactly. communities behind. Are we at a historic inflection point? And given your, your long tenure in the space, are there learnings we can draw from prior inflection points we can apply to the moment we're in now? I think we are at a historic moment and hopefully it comes out the right way. Uh, the analogy I often draw is to what happened in the US auto industry in the 70s and 80s and uh, you know, Older folks will remember that there was a time when people thought that the U.S. auto industry might actually collapse because of quality problems. Initial quality uh, of, of uh, automobiles in the 70s and early 80s were just terrible. And the Japanese 
were coming really, really hard. And the industry got to the edge of collapse, and then there was a kind of an awakening. And now we have the, the situation where we pretty much rely on our cars to not break down very much compared to those days. And the instinct that the Japanese had, which was driven by Deming, of course, was an American, was this idea that counter to what the prevailing wisdom was in Detroit, which is you could either have a high quality car or a low cost car. Deming and the Japanese said, no, what if we built a car that every year through continuous improvement was high quality and lower cost? And this wound up being pushing the US auto industry to the edge of collapse. And that tipping point led to a transformation. I'm hoping that's what happens in healthcare because things are really bad right now in terms of um, winner-loser mentality. You're either a winner or a loser. The loss of healthcare coverage in rural areas, burnout of doctors. I mean, it's a pretty dire situation right now in our business. It really is, and it, it's interesting because I think a lot of folks will say COVID exacerbated all of these problems. But I think from where you and I sit, and you've done this a lot longer than I have, all of these problems existed long before the pandemic, but the pandemic in many ways was an accelerant. Absolutely. You, you look at physician burnout, you look at the increased documentation burden that's being driven by increased regulation. How do we start to chip away at this transformation? Boy, it's a really, you know, you and I think about this all day, every day. It's, uh, there's no silver bullet that I can see. Uh, and we've got some uh, powerful counter trends that seem to make the hill higher every day. So um, as you've observed, everything we accomplish in uh, value-based care seems to show up in relatively small numbers if you look at what CMS reports. And then you have cell-based therapies coming in with the opportunity to uh, do wonderful things for patients, but to hit the cost curve with a power that all the good work we do in, in value-based health can't quite uh, fix. So I think it's, uh, it's going to require the kind of edge of destruction conversations that the auto industry went through. And what I mean by that is we're not doing a great job right now as a country of having really hard conversations. The polarization, the politicization of healthcare is not helping because uh, frankly, these are not problems that are very easily reduced to my way or your way. I, I like the framing of there's no silver bullet. I think, you know, in, in, in my business, a lot of times folks will say, oh, we're gonna buy this data platform and that's gonna help us accelerate our performance under a value-based contract. But you know, you ran Lumeris in the early days of value-based care or this most recent version of value-based care. Right. And you knew from an early perspective that technology alone can't solve a problem. It's technology plus change management and continuous evolution. It's not just changing practice workflow. It's learning from the experiences we have, making our care model better day by day. And I think that that's one of the most interesting points about our inflection that we're in is it's not like new technology will solve this. You have a provider health system, which is primarily dominated by two or three large technology vendors. When you think of the transactional and billing systems we use, you have a payer system, which is a very similar landscape. There are just a few core systems that administrate most claims across right. the country. And you talk about change management at the same time that we also talk about provider and care team burnout, especially after the pandemic. Right. And it feels like organizations like yours are just perfectly positioned to take advantage of this moment, especially considering that there aren't many options for independent providers. Um, curious how you think about the role of technology and the role of change management services, enabling services as we, as we navigate this transition. 
Well, I've been in tech for you know my whole career, and you have a lot hear a lot of cliches like you know, oh, this is as powerful as a mainframe, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but the fact is, healthcare is stretching computing power, frankly, beyond its limits right now. You think about the fact that for the first time now, we are able to integrate claims data, EMR data, HIE data. We haven't even begun to integrate genomics data, imaging data. Uh, so. Uh, the fact is we are at the limit of what computing can actually do today. And let me bring it down to the really practical. We can move data around, we can put it in big databases, we can have data lakes and data vaults, data bricks, but the data's a mess. Yeah. And the data's always a mess, it continues to be a mess, and we're adding more and more data. The fact of the matter is, and I know you know this very well, the data that comes out of the payers, the data that comes out of the providers, it's messy, it's dirty. We have many different users, many different uses. So technology is struggling, quite honestly. And it's one of the problems is that in our daily life, you know, Amazon has figured out how to sell us a tie, but it has not figured out how to handle payer data coming in and rationalizing and normalizing. Just take a problem as simple as attribution, okay? As simple as attribution. Okay, you'd think, and everyone, you know, someone who's dealing with what they get from Amazon or Netflix every day thinks, you can't figure out which patients are associated with which product and which provider and which contract and which incentive payment. And as an industry, our answer is no, we can't. I mean, it's really, uh, really a challenge for technology today. I think it's so interesting to actually use the Amazon comparator because what Amazon did was disrupt the way that consumers think about how to consume goods. Yes. You know, I remember, I'm not very young anymore, but I remember when the holiday time came along and you'd get a catalog in the mail and you'd circle things right. and you'd order things either by phone or maybe online and it would take weeks to arrive. And now if if you can't get prime next day delivery, it's like you're living in a third world country, which is not, you know, we, we've become really accustomed to this immediate gratification, immediate consumerism. And healthcare has a consumerism problem that we, we really have to address. Attribution's a great example because you have who the payer thinks the primary provider is. And if you look at you know, a, a Medicare beneficiary who might have six or seven providers or coordinating right. care with, they may be seeing a specialist more regular than their primary care provider. And de facto, that specialist is coordinating their care, even if the PCP right. is involved. You may have a, a, a new mother or uh, someone trying to start a family where their OB is effectively their PCP, right. but some plans don't allow for attribution there. That's right. Then you have who the patient thinks their primary care provider is, and that might be an NP, it might be an RN, it may be a care coordinator. And so I think you have this concept of how do you bridge this concept of attribution that takes into consideration who that person goes to for their care advice. And that person may not ever submit a claim. It, it gets also to the uses. So for example, uh, we have payers who will attribute the patient differently depending on the use of the data involved. So if I'm computing an incentive payment versus allowing the transmission of information to support a clinical uh, diagnosis, there might be two different attributions of the same patient in the same product to the same providers. So it, this is an example. The complexity of the healthcare system uh, is really challenging. And we don't just have a consumerism problem, we also have a consumer problem. Yeah. Because we are all tolerating the fact that, and everyone's had this experience now where, you know, it feels like you thought about, gee, maybe I need a new, uh, you know, uh, miter saw. 
and you did, haven't done anything about it, and suddenly Amazon, you see an ad for a miter. So I'm like, wait yeah. a minute, what are they doing? And obviously you did something online that triggered that. And yet in healthcare, we're obsessed with uh, the misspelling of HIPAA. We right. think that the P stands for privacy, and it stood for portability. But so we, we're not, we don't have a, an adult agreement in the society at large about what information can and should be shared. So we're practicing defensive technology, whereas Amazon's on the offense. Yeah. But we're defensive. We're always trying to make sure we're not using data wrong. We're not violating the, the right to privacy, which is understandable. But it's yet another barrier to us getting to the place where we can provide healthcare at a level of quality that consumers will say, yeah, that's as, that's as sweet as what happens uh, when I deal with Amazon. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. One of the debates that just drives me up the wall is why we can't have a national person identifier. Right. You know, I, I just refinanced my house, well, a year ago when rates were not what they are now. But I refinanced my house. I put my social security number on any number of forms. I didn't think twice about it. Right. But as a data consumer, one of the first questions we get asked by a lot of our customers is, if you get social security numbers, are you guys wiping them out of the database? We don't want to use an SSN to identify a person. Right. Why? Right. You know, it, 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 it just blows my mind that we can't create this single longitudinal care record joined by a single identifier. And so you have organizations like yours and your competitors all trying to create the same concept of a person right. when we have a solution, but there's endless barriers in front of it. And we have to have a, a confidence factor, right? We build up a statistical uh, assessment of, is this actual Michael Miucci? And is it, this the right Michael? Right, uh, and and we have to say we're ninety seven percent confident it's him. Yeah. Uh, well, we had a national patient identifier, right? It, we, it was passed into law, and then it was overturned. Yeah. Back in the late nineties. To your point about the overpoliticization of healthcare, it's interesting. I agree with you that we have a consumer problem, because also when it comes to healthcare, folks are really sensitive. That's right. So I have a dog, and my vet is a fantastic marketer. I get a text message from my vet all the time. It's summertime coming up in New England, which means it's tick season. You need right. to make sure you're doing X, Y, and Z. But you and I both know that those are the types of alerts we need to send to patients to say, hey, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. You need to make sure that every two years you're getting a mammogram, or it's Lung Cancer Awareness Month. It's X awareness. But there's so much concern about using health information right. to guide folks into getting preventive care is that marketing. And, and there's this big concern of, oh, well, we can't market to patients using healthcare data. But is it marketing or is it providing suggestions? Because the average healthcare consumer isn't going to work every day, isn't waking up every day saying, oh gosh, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month and I need a mammogram. And I think that there's all this internalized angst around how do we use technology, how do we use right. consumer tools to activate healthcare consumers as consumers. Well, I think you're touching on the most important dynamic of what we're trying to do in healthcare with population health management, which is to reverse the sort of polarity of how medical care is provided. Historically, the way we provide care is in reaction. So there's even a phrase that the docs use, right? They say, uh, the patient presents and the, the doctor sits in an office and the patient presents, which means that the patient determines when and if and when they should be treated. What we need to do in an environment where it's uh, multiple chronic conditions that are driving the cost is we need to flip that model around and take the medical industry into a proactive mode. Yeah. And there's resistance to that 
from the clinical side because of the way they've been trained and it feels uncomfortable, it feels like marketing, they don't like pushing drugs and I understand that. But there's also the problem on the consumer side that says, well, it's not invasive if Amazon suggests I should buy uh, a new blue suit, but it's very invasive if the doctor sends me a message saying I should get a mammogram. Um, that, that's the kind of thing that we're not dealing with as people yet in right. society. Um, but we have got to get the medical establishment focused on health and wellness. Because right now, our model of care is drug surgery and devices in reaction to a condition that has presented. That's not a health and wellness, as many people say. We don't have a health care system. We have a disease care system. And that's a big part of the problem is how do we get comfortable with proactive engagement towards health and wellness. We, we don't have that in our society as a thing. In fact, it's interesting that you think about it, there's a trillion dollar healthcare industry that's not covered by insurance, which is the over-the-counter health and wellness and supplements and gym. Our, our society says, you should say, pay for that yourself, but as a society with our many, many different business models, we'll pay for the diseases that may have been caused by your uh, behaviors over on the health and wellness side. It's, it's a fascinating point. I was, I was listening to a presentation by a physician who's working on the, the National Physician Burnout Plan uh, with Surgeon General, and she said, I, I entered medicine to be a healer. Right. And I heard that and I said, that's really wonderful, but it doesn't attack this concept that we should try and prevent people from getting to the point where they need to be healed. Let's keep people healthier longer, enable more happy, healthy days on the planet, and, and returning to health faster. And I think that brings us to this the second big factor that we're wrestling with, which is the labor market right now. Right. You know, you and I are both tech executives and we've dealt with the labor market. It's been a really challenging 12 months as there's been a lot of reshuffling, growing wages. This is putting enormous pressure on hospitals and health systems, and it's having a, a bunch of negative effects on patients. You know, I got a call the other day saying I'm due for an annual exam. My PCP's office said, you know, we'd like to schedule you in our first available appointments in January. Right. Well, that was in September. And that's really a problem because as a healthcare consumer, that means that if I want to see my doctor, I might go to an urgent care or to a freestanding ED as opposed to going to my provider's office because there's no access. And at the same time, you have medical professionals leaving the field at greater rates than ever before. And that really threatens the overall stability of the healthcare system. And the result is that hospital systems and healthcare delivery organizations are paying higher rates for traveling nurses and recruiting physicians, which is putting downward pressure on their financials. Is there a way to reset that? Well, what had to happen in the auto industry was that we had to redesign the processes so people could operate at the high end of their license. You know, so maybe that doctor is right. She should be a healer. But what are we doing with the rest of our system to enable her to focus her energies on healing, not on documentation, not on prevention and wellness programs? which need her blessing, but she shouldn't be the one that has to sit on the phone and make the calls. So we really need to re-engineer. We talked about this in the 90s and we did it with many industries, but as in so many other things, healthcare has been a laggard. We haven't taken advantage of what so many industries did, right? You think back to the 90s when people adopted the web. Yeah. All right. Healthcare has barely adopted the web at this point. We're way behind in the kind of systems thinking and re-engineering that would allow doctors to be healers. I mean, you want them to be focused on dealing with the things that, that come, but as a society, shouldn't we be avoiding 
amputations based on diabetes for all the many reasons that we have unnecessary amputations related to diabetes today, mostly SDOH and so on. So I think it's, it, it needs a re-engineering that technology can effect, but not without the social commitment. It's interesting as, as a technologist, and you hear this too, one of, the, one of the biggest conversations that's going on in healthcare technology today is all about fire and data exchange. And you and I both know that they're just talking about service-oriented architecture, which has right. been around for 20 years. And healthcare is just getting to the point where they're saying, oh, well, all of our applications are gonna be API enabled. And you know, I, I say to myself all the time, that's not new, it's not revolutionary. This is what the banking industry has been doing for 30 years. Now granted, the data is messier, it's more complicated, right. it has more nuance, but the general principle of creating an open architecture where systems can talk to each other in a standard language is not a groundbreaking concept, but it is very disruptive to healthcare. And there's a lot of resistance in how it's implemented and how it's adopted. The resistance is not technological, No, the re right? The, re the resistance is economic and it's because of very unusual situation we have in our country compared to all other industrialized countries. Most all industrialized countries have a very similar care model, which is drug surgery and devices in response to patients who present. Some are ahead of us on wealth and wellness, but not that many. That where we're different from virtually every other country is we have so many payment models and so many economic models, and we don't have universal access, which is not a socialism capitalism thing. There's many countries that run their healthcare on a capitalist basis, but universal access is expected in the society. We have this society where there's, you know, myriad of ways to get paid to present benefits. The benefits are all different. Uh, and that creates a, a winners and losers mentality. You have a lot of battles between the constituents like payers and providers. And that makes it very, very difficult to get cooperation around interoperability. You talk to Anish Chopra, it's not really a technical problem, no. right? It's, it's getting people to really commit and your description of the systems, where you have a couple of large vendors, that could be good or bad on the hospital side. But let's be honest, and most of the payer systems are still homegrown. It's like mainframes in the 60s and 70s. So yeah. we've got a lot of catch up to do. Even when they buy a commercial product, they then go and hire Accenture or Deloitte to customize it to high heaven. And then when you want to upgrade it, you're, you're redoing it. So there's an right. enormous amount of waste there. I'm actually really glad you brought up the conversation around payment models. It's one of the biggest challenges that we face as a business. You know, when, right. when we implemented your platform, we went through the configuration of your specific rules for your specific MA product versus your IFP product versus right. your exchange product, commercial product. And, and then how do you configure all the carve outs? It's a huge administrative overhead. Right. And it makes it really challenging for care teams to navigate what's the right thing to do for this patient, not only to drive better health, but then to make sure that as business owners, a lot of these independent practices can keep their practices independent and stable. Is there a, an answer? Is it, does it require government intervention to simplify payment models? Can it be driven by the private sector? I mean, the government's involved. We tend to, it's funny how we talk about how we don't want government funded healthcare. We have government funded healthcare. If it wasn't for the tax uh, deductibility of corporate insurance, there probably wouldn't be corporate insurance of the scale that there is today, right? I mean, we're the only country that has that where the insurance is deductible to the corporation and to the consumer. So if you really look at it and you think of Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, uh, TRICARE, you know, all the programs, the government's already involved. So one of the issues is, is not so much intervention, it would be simplification mm. and consistency. I mean, even CMS and CMMI 
have trouble doing the same thing. So if you look at how they're doing risk adjustment in Medicare Advantage and in MSSP, I mean, please, this could have been a little bit more consistent, yeah. right? And and so the proliferation of programs and, and uh, the vintages of the programs, you know, it depends what year it started, which metrics they used and how they configured the metrics. and Which path you're on. I mean, HEDIS is supposed to be one thing. It's no, not one it's thing. It's not one thing. It's right? 6,000 right. things. 6,000 things. So government intervention, a little self-reflection might be a good thing. Um, a little more consistency would be hugely helpful. And that's one of the things we strive for is that we're trying to go uh, to be truly multi-payer. You know, we're IBC and Humana and CMS now as we try to add other payers. How do we could simplify the workflow to the docs and to the office staff so they're not having to ask the question, oh, can I offer this to this patient, but I can't offer it to that patient? We, it's, that's not how they want to practice medicine. No, they want to practice medicine where they can focus on why they got into the craft. Right. It's interesting you mentioned CMS and CMMI. The Medicare Shared Savings Program, I think, turns 10 in, in its current, I think it started with Pioneer ACO, but it's 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 been around for a decade. And we talk, we see press releases all the time, you know, this health system saved this many millions of dollars for CMS. And then you see the same health system saying, oh, we just posted a $1.5 billion loss. It feels like the, the impact of CMMI's programs has been fantastic at raising awareness for the ability for systems to participate in value-based payment. But I don't think we're necessarily seeing the financial impact we need to reverse the trajectory of the cost trend. Is it going to be driven by more Medicare Advantage and more commercial risk? Or do you think that the CMMI intervention will, will continue to drive you? You have the administrators saying, we want every Medicare and Medicaid life in a value-based payment model by 2030. The only concern I have is, is there going to be 600 different models they want to be participating right, in? Right. I'm a little more uh, positive on what's been accomplished. I think one of the problems is that as a society, we're very short-term focused. Um, if you've been doing this for 16, 17 years as I have, to say that Medicare Advantage hasn't changed the way certainly independent primary care is done in this country, I think it's, it's just not true. It's fundamentally changed how primary care docs work, certainly in the independent realm. And I don't think you can measure the benefits in the first year. I mean, you, where's the 10-year analysis? I don't think we've seen that. Yeah, we haven't. And there's a lot of work that's never been done. Today, right now, there's skepticism about this prospective health status assessment as a clinical strategy actually help uh, lower the, the, the cost and, and, and improve the, uh, the, the care of the patients. Why haven't we studied that? I don't, I'm not aware of a single longitudinal serious study into that question. So I'm a little more optimistic about that. But the second thing that I would say that I think is really your opening question was, are we at a turning point? I call it the shift from Pop Health 1.0 to 2.0. So when I got into this in 2007, Pop Health 1.0, we had claims data only. It was primary care only. Hospitals barely had EMRs. And the main strategy was don't send your patients to the hospital and God forbid you send them to an academic medical center. That was Pop Health 1.0. And yeah. the canonical artifact was a roster of patients with a suggested care gap closures, knowing that three or four out of 100 would be bad data. Fast forward to where we are now as the baby boom turns into frail elderly and our system has to deal with this massive volume for the next 15 or 20 years. And we are in a very exciting moment where all of a sudden, with you, with you guys at Arcadia, 
We're looking at HIE claims and EMR data in the same database. That's huge. We are engaging specialists, ASCs, hospital facilities. It takes a village. We're starting to bring everybody to bear on the seniors, and it's no longer don't send them to the hospital. It's send them to the right hospital, uh, meritocratic steerage. Send them where they should go by cost, quality, patient experience, and don't make them drive 100 miles you know, a, a hospital near home is all possible. And we're starting to see this new phase where you, it takes a village, you've got rich data. Um, we should be able to make a breakthrough if, as the auto industry had to do, we wake up and say, boy, we've really got to take a step function forward. And it's going to take way more of a collaborative point of view. And to your point about the COVID exacerbation, Maybe this moment where the hospital systems are just staggering uh, is, is one where we can say we've got to fix this at a more structural level. And it's, it's really not a Democratic or Republican issue. It's a national health and safety issue. It's a societal issue. It is. It's a national security issue. That's I, I agree with you. I'm actually very hopeful about a number of things that are going on. I think the, the biggest thing that gives me a lot of hope is that you have a new generation of seniors aging into Medicare. Right. These are seniors who worked the majority of their career with technology. They're comfortable with technology. Yep. My mother is one of those people. She's newly Medicare eligible. She uses virtual care to receive care. She's really excited about using technology to manage her care because she's been doing that. And I think that that creates tremendous opportunity yep. to usher in new digital diagnostics, digital treatment pathways, and allow the labor force to extend itself and drive productivity. I think the other thing that's really promising is that national dialogue around transformation is in a place where everyone acknowledges the problem. Healthcare executives, payer executives, right. legislators all understand that we have this opportunity in front of us. And COVID helped us experiment with a lot of things. Right. One, of the, one of the benefits of the pandemic was all of a sudden your right. compliance teams and your regulatory teams weren't concerned about text messaging a patient or robocalling right. a patient because it was the only thing we could do. That's right. And so COVID in a way created a playground to experiment with a little bit reduced regulation or a little bit less concern about regulation. Right. And so you have this confluence of factors that make Pop Health 2.0 uniquely different than Pop Health 1.0 and HMO in the 90s. Right. And now the question just becomes is how do we use all of that data and all that platform of change for good? And I think that we are on the right path. I do too. Frank, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.